So let me read, let me read the psalm, and then we will, we will dig in. Psalm chapter 7, it's on page 420 if you're using the, um, the hardbound Bibles that we have here. A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He, will, he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. He gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help as we enter into the, his word. Holy Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us all we need to know, to know you, to know ourselves, to know what we must do to be saved, to know all that you require of us. Thank you for the promises that you've given us. And thank you for the record of your faithfulness in everything. Lord, we wish to see Jesus. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, help us to understand what you have so freely given us that we might live for you and honor you in all that we do. Amen. Amen. So in the preface, you see there that this is a shigion. Nobody knows what that really means. <laughs> That's why it's a transliteration. But it's, it, it might be a it might be a a, a musical or a liturg, liturgical term. It could be like, you know, this is to be sung for this or that. But we do know that this psalm is we could call it a lament. And a lament is is kind of a broad term in the psalms. It's it's 
something that's been prayed, something to be sung in a time of distress, uh, in a time of affliction. And so we see here, even just from the preface, um, that David sang this song concerning the words of someone named Cush, of whom we know nothing about. It's not in the, uh, it's not in the biblical record, uh, it, but it says he was a Benjamite, Benjaminite. So he was a, from the tribe of Benjamin. So it's possible that he, um, you know, during the time that David was under being pursued by Saul, when Saul was so insanely jealous of David and sought to kill him, so before David became king. And so, you know, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, David was from the tribe of Judah. So it could have been some tribal allegiance just because, you know, Saul was from the. Uh, from, from the tribe of, of Benjamin. And so perhaps this man, Cush, had stirred up opposition to David, saying things about him, defaming his character, uh, lying about him, basically, and so in possibly endangering David's life. And the psalm is about what David did in his distress in this situation. And it's instructive for us, and we'll, we'll get there as we dig into this song, but when we come under the affliction, when somebody comes against us, uh, an enemy, um, you know, what do we do? Where do we go? Who do we turn to? Do we, you know take it upon ourselves to deal with this person or you know do we go to God like David has done here so we're going to see what David has done we want to look at the character of God I've broken this down into four things that we must do and uh, the first thing is flee to God and I'll give these headings as we go along the second thing is we humble ourselves before God our perfect judge Third thing that we see David doing that we need to do, we need to pray. We always need to pray. And then lastly, we give thanks for who God is and what he does. In the middle of that, between pray and give thanks, I have assurance. I have this chapter of verses 8 to 16. Um, I see this as David's foundation of why he flees to God, why God is his refuge, his shield, his deliverer. So, starting in verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. That's David's prayer, his cry out to God. So when he's come under the threat of these people. It sounds, he says, pursuers, plural. So it sounds like his life is in danger. And so he runs to God, his Lord. You notice that, that the word Lord here, I think he uses it seven times, Lord my God, so it's all in cap, caps. And so if you read the preface of your Bible, they tell the, the translators told us that this is the, the covenant name of God, what they call the tetragrammaton, the four uh, 
consonants, the four letters, and no vowels. The Jews were very scrupulous, and so they didn't want to even say the name of God, and so they really, we don't even know how to pronounce it. It's just, so it's just a guess. So we, we say Yahweh, and, or you might have heard it uh, being pronounced, it's Jehovah, it's Y-H-W-H, or the vowels. But the point is, the important thing is, is that this is God's covenant name. And it's important because we see that God, in, throughout Scripture, that God is a covenant God. That he makes his covenant with his people. His covenants that he makes are what we call unilateral. He chose a people, the people of Israel, that he raised up, and he made covenant with them. And we see this language in the, the beginning of the, uh, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God establishes himself as head over his people. He doesn't confer with them and say, you know what, I want to make a covenant with you. You've got any demands you'd like to make. He doesn't do that. But he graciously and wisely, since he knows all things and he knows what our needs are, he enters into covenant and he commits himself on the basis of his holy name to take care of his people. And so we see that in David, just the way he addresses his God, the way he addresses God, he's recognizing, I am under your covenant, and you're committed. You've committed to take care of me. And so we need to remember that. I mean, we're, it's, it's not just, you know, God out there somewhere. It is God with us. It is God intimately involved with us. It is God caring about every aspect of our lives. And that needs to be the forefront of our minds. When we wake up in the morning, we give thanks to God. We offer up the day to him. We entrust ourselves to him. And so it was just second nature, and it should be second nature to us to, to go to God in whatever situation Go to him first in prayer. So he, um, again, says, In you I take refuge. God is our refuge. As Psalm 46 says, Our very present help in time of need. So he's asking him for deliverance. He's not, again, it's interesting that David is not taking this into his own hands because, you know, we see from David's history that he was a warrior. I mean, he was a very apt fighter very skilled, and also when he was on the run from Saul, you know, he'd gathered to himself, you know, a lot of men came out to him who were also very able warriors. The Bible called them mighty men. So, again, he doesn't, he doesn't take it into his own hands, but he seeks God, and we'll see why. He says, less like a lion, they tear my soul apart. Really graphic language. Rending it in pieces with none to deliver. We don't know if this was a physical threat. He was in threat of his life. Was he being defamed in his character? Um, what is a spiritual threat? You know, Peter says, you know, be on your guard, your enemy. The devil prowls her out like a roaring lion, uh, wandering lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
So we see that picture here. Also, David was a shepherd. And so we see that imagery. You remember when the, it, Goliath was out there, and he's talking to Saul, and he said, hey, you know what? I've had bears attack my sheep. I've had lions attack my sheep. And I went and I took the sheep out of their mouths, rescued the sheep from them. And when they turned on me, I grabbed them and killed them, basically. So he's got this imagery of a shepherd, the danger that the sheep are in, like a lion pursuing a lamb. And here is the shepherd, David the shepherd, running, fleeing to his shepherd because of the danger that he's in. He's not unaware, and, and we should not be unaware, of the perils that we have in this world, that we do have enemies, that as the people of God, we, we have natural enemies, just like you know, sheep have predators and things that, the animals that endanger them. The people of God have natural enemies. We see it back in, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her seed and your seed, or your children and her children. And also, we see this all throughout redemptive history. We see this, this enmity between the children of God and the children of the serpent, or the children of Satan. And John's epistle bears out. He said, now we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. So humanity is split, divided into two sections, really. Those who belong to Christ, those who do not, those who belong to Christ are God's children. Those who do not belong to Christ are still in the kingdom of darkness. They still are under the power of the evil one. And so there's this natural or spiritual enmity. The second thing, in verses 3 to 5, we see David humbling himself before God, his perfect, the perfect judge. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, whatever, whatever he's being accused of, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So, David humbly submits himself to God's wise judgment. He just doesn't run out there and say, hey, I didn't do anything. And he's not trying to vindicate himself. He's not getting into a war of words with whoever this person is or these people are. He takes it to God. And the God who knows all things, he sees all things. And God is the one who truly knows he's innocent. And when somebody starts spreading lies, people will hear it and they may believe it and hold it against you as they were probably doing against David. And so he takes it to the one 
who is the true judge of all the earth. The second thing is, is that it's possible, you know, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe David has done something offensive. Maybe, he's, maybe he sinned against Saul or whoever. Maybe he did wrong in something, and David is just not seeing it. And that happens a lot with us, right? I mean, we, we do something, we offend somebody, and, uh, you know, they, they bring it to our attention, or maybe they react to us. And, um, and we're, we don't know how to respond. It's like, hey, I didn't do anything. Well, don't necessarily assume. I mean, if somebody points something out to you, you know, like, like when my wife will say to me in the morning, you know, are you in a grumpy mood today? <laughs> and it's like, you know, well, she, I mean, she can read me. I mean, she knows me better than anybody. You know, it's like, eh, yeah, goodness. maybe not. No, you know, but we need to humble ourselves and say, hey, you know, maybe, maybe they're right. And so David goes to God and he's saying, if, I, if there was wrong in my hands, if I've done evil, repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the consequences be what they will. You know, don't deliver a guilty man. And the thing that is, is so amazing or so instructive with David is just his humility in all this. I don't think that he's trying to establish his righteousness or his innocence before God. I mean, he knows. I mean, obviously, he thinks he's innocent. But he's letting God be the final judge. And we need to trust God with these things. We need to leave the vindication or the revenge or the retaliation to God. Remember, God tells us in uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Let me grab it here. He says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time will come when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. So vengeance is mine and recompense, or I will repay. Only God knows exactly and how to justly deal with an offense. And so the problem is, if we say, think, oh, you know what, I'm going to take care of it, and I'm going to give this person what he deserves. Um, probably not. We either go overboard or it won't be good enough. So, again... Only God can truly and justly repay the wicked. Now, there's something that, you know, some issue that can be settled in, in some manner, you know, then we do that. But if it's a, you know how it is. I mean, you get these interpersonal things or somebody just has it out for you. Then you just entrust God with it. You live in the integrity of the heart that God has given us to live for him and honor him. And we trust him 
with what you know he, only he can do. I want to point something out here too. I, there's, there's a uh, there's a shadow cast over this psalm, so to speak. It's it's the shadow of Christ, and I wanna I wanna bring that to your attention because I think it's very instructive. I think it's very helpful, but. I, like I said, I see the shadow of Christ in this psalm. So I want to, if you want to turn there, you can turn to 2 Peter, or 1 Peter, excuse me. 1 Peter chapter one, uh, 2, verses 19. I'm going to read that. I'm not going to elaborate on it so much, but there's a real parallel here in what David's experiencing and what Christ experienced. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, uh, suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See the parallel there? So we, we call this a shadow. It says, like, yeah, we can see Christ in this. It's usually something that we, when we've seen the reality, then we look at the shadow and we can say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But if we're just looking at a shadow, you usually don't even know what you're looking at. You, you couldn't, I mean, you might be able to tell it's a person if you didn't, you know, see the person casting the shadow. But you can't tell anything about it. You couldn't say, oh yeah, that's a guy in his 30s, maybe six foot, blue eyes, wearing a red shirt. You can't tell that stuff from a shadow. But God has woven these things into Scripture. It is amazing to me how the incidents that took, life, took, par, uh, took place in the life of David, when he writes these things down, and we look back at it, and we go, Wow, that's just like what Christ experienced. It's not an accident. It's not just some random coincidence. But God inspired these writers of Scripture, especially you see it in the Psalms. I mean, I see Christ in the Psalms. I mean, it's pointing me to Christ all the time. Like Jesus said, all of Scripture testifies to me. And in... uh, like the, on the Emmaus Road, the two disciples in Luke 24, you know, Jesus explained to them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, everything that was written about him. So we're not trying to drive a square peg in a round, round hole here. I mean, this, is, this really is pointing us to Christ. Or, it's, or it is validating what we know of Christ. And so that's one of the things that I love about the Psalms, is seeing Christ, how the Psalms point us to Christ. And here, we not only have David's example, but we have Christ's example. When he was reviled, 
He did not retaliate, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's what we need to do. We need to, to look at Christ, and we need to see, I mean, because we're being transformed into his image. And so the life that we live, we're living for Christ. We're living it for his glory. We're, our lives are on display to make Christ look good. And so when we come under these difficult things and these trials and, you know, people come against us, you know, how we respond speaks volumes so that when we do open our mouths and, and talk about Christ and the gospel to whatever the people we work with or our neighbors or our families, it, it, it's consistent with the life that they've seen. Next, David offers up a prayer, verses 6 and 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Arise, awake. Lord, arise in your anger. God's anger. He talks about anger here again in verse 11. A God who feels indignation every day. Some of us are uncomfortable with that aspect of God. But if you know God, if you know the scriptures, it seems that a God who isn't angry would be totally inconsistent with who he is, with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his justice. When David says, arise, awake, it's obviously it's, it's analogous language. He's just, you know, he's using, God's not asleep and God's not inattentive. But it, it speaks of David's urgency his concern in the matter. And we see that, again, we see that language throughout Scripture. But he's in danger. And so he cries out. You know, like the Israelites when they were standing at the Red Sea with their backs against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them and they're, they're you know, what are we going to do? And, of course, God does something he's never done before. You know, he opens up a path through the sea. And so, you know, David knows God. David knows his power. He knows his faithfulness. He knows his trustworthiness. And so he cries out for God to take care of him in this situation. The fury of my enemies. But he says, you have appointed a judgment let the, assemb- let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over at return on high. God is judge. He is a righteous judge, as he says in verse 11. He is an omniscient judge. He knows the hearts. He knows our minds. He knows our actions. He knows our motivations. 
He's not like a human judge that, you know, perhaps, you know, he doesn't know everything. He wasn't there when, you know, we did whatever it is we're being accused of. So have you ever stood before a human judge? Not a very pleasant situation. And you're hoping that, well, you know, maybe, you know, I can slip by with this one. But not with God. And David knows that. So he's crying out that God will bring judgment and that God will vindicate him. God has appointed a day, appointed a judgment. You know, Paul brings that out in Acts chapter 17. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the one he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So we're not looking just at this one situation. I mean, it, it, it has bearing on everything. Everyone will stand before a holy God who knows everything. He knows what we did why we did it. And, and he will judge justly and he will punish accordingly, as we'll see. So in verses 8 to 16, I see what we have, what I would call assurance, David's assurance. Again, we've already seen God's attribute of, of justice and judgment and, God, and David is banking on that. He knows that our, his God, our God, will do right. And so David, he lines these things out in his prayer, in his song. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, it might sound like David is, is boasting in his righteousness, but he's asking for God to look at him and and judge what's truly in him. Now, you know, he says, uh, down in verse 10, he says, you know, my shield is my God, is with God who saves the upright in heart. Again, you know, he's, it's a general statement, but he's referring to himself, again, as being upright in heart. Now, one of the things we need to understand when we're in the Psalms, when we're in the Old Testament, how they describes certain things, and righteousness doesn't necessarily mean that he's perfectly righteous in the ultimate sense, as in sinless, but it speaks of a covenantal faithfulness. So we see it in Deuteronomy, it's Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God, uh, where Moses is laying out the, the, the blessings and curses, you know, you'll be blessed if you do this, you'll be cursed if you do this. And so... David is appealing to that. David is appealing to this, the, the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, that's where he's at. That's what he's living under at the time. And so God said, hey, if you're faithful, I will deliver you. I will prosper you. I will do this. And, and so he's not saying that I'm perfectly sinless. But he is saying, I've been faithful. I have not served other gods. I've not bowed down to idols. And we know from God's own testimony that David was a man after God's own heart. So 
and I might point out that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, that people were saved just like we're saved today. They were saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. The law was only to point them, was to point them to Christ. It had other uses, but one of the main things, it said the gospel was preached to them. So it was pointing them to Christ. And so the Holy Spirit worked in people's hearts back then like he does now. The relationship between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, New Covenant believers is different in that we have a fullness of the Holy Spirit that only prophets did in the Old Testament. But when you see these things, that's how to, you know, that, those are the categories. That's, what, that's what's being spoken of here. Let the evil and wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test minds and hearts, O righteous God. So we already talked about how God tests. He knows our minds. He knows our hearts. He's a perfect judge. He will make a perfect assessment of the situation, and only he, he will deal with it rightly. God is a shield, verse 10, who saves the upright in heart. We don't need to fear. I mean, when it says that God is our shield, and I know that language, again, we don't think of, I mean, we know what a shield is, but we probably never used one. But a good shield will save your life. If you're a police officer and you've got a, you wear a vest and you've got a steel plate in there, it's a shield. Okay, it's made to stop bullets. And you're, you're betting your life on it when you wear that, when you put that thing on. And so God is our shield. He will save us. He will save us through all of our circumstances, he might not take us out of them, and he doesn't, as we saw from what Peter said in his epistle. They were suffering for doing good. And as Jesus said, don't be surprised that the world hates you. It hated me first. So we will suffer in this life. In this world, you shall have tribulation. So we're not looking... David is looking... David is looking for temporal deliverance here. And that's spoken about very often in the psalm. So a lot of times in the psalm when it says that he saves the upright in heart, he's talking about he's saving him from his calamity, from his threat. But it is pointing us to the greater salvation, to the salvation that Christ will accomplish. So God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. We've considered this. But again, people have no concept of who God is. He's kind of like uh, a kindly grandfather, Santa Claus, um, you know, prosperity, you know, give me what I wish, your genie. 
If you do this, this, and this, you'll get this. But God doesn't play games. Consider what it took to save you. Consider the price that had to be paid that God gave up his son for us to save us. A ransom of infinite worth. It tells us how great our sins are, how great an affront every sin is to God. Which is why he is so righteously indignant. We can't relate to God's anger because our anger, I don't, I don't think I've ever had righteous anger. I mean, it's always selfish. It's always sinful. There's something, it's self-centered. But God's anger is rooted in his goodness, all his attributes. We can't imagine God who is merciful and loving and angry. It can be all at the same time. We can't conceive of the capacity of that kind of capacity. But he's infinite. He's way beyond our searching out. He's way above our scrutiny. And that's why we worship him. I mean, what a God. What a Savior. The vastness of who he is. We can never come to an end of his glories. We can never run out of his mercies. He's always attentive, always caring for us. There's never a time when something happened. He says, I'm sorry about that. I was busy taking care of this over here. We can't conceive of a God who is attentive to everything that goes on in the universe, is in control of everything, is in command of everything. He brought everything into being, and he maintains everything. And he would let go of, of this universe for a second. It would just disintegrate. He holds everything together. He upholds everything by the word of his power. This is our God. If a man does not repent, verse 12, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God is ready for judgment. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He is not slow in taking care of his people. He is not slow in executing justice. But he's merciful and he's patient. He will wet his sword. What is that? He's sharpening his sword like a whetstone. So, I mean, he's got it ready. It's deadly. He's got his, his bow is bent. He's already, got an, he's already got a bead on the unrighteous, on the unrepentant. He's locked and loaded, as we'd say. And uh, so it's, it's absolutely sure it will happen. It's not like he's lounging around somewhere. 
again, the capacity of God for justice and mercy, for, for forgiveness and judgment. I mean, he's all of these things, always. Nothing and nobody gets beyond his attention. He says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. He gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into it, into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. So we're seeing here, we have a picture, a few, few pictures here. The first one conceives evil, pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. It's kind of reminiscent of, of James's description of sin in his first chapter. I think it's verse 15 where he says that, you know, no one should say when they're tempted, God is tempting me because God does not tempt anybody to do evil. But when we are tempted, we are dragged away or enticed by our own desires and then you know, he uses that, that this imagery that it, that it gives when it, when sin gives birth, it's conceived, and when sin gives birth, it gives birth to death. So, if you're without Christ, there's no restraint for your sin, at least not in your own heart. I mean, we're slaves to sin without Christ. So there's no battle with sin. We're just going for it. And that's the picture here. And we see that it's a picture of poetic justice. His mischief returns upon his own head. And his, his violence descends upon his own skull. It, God is going to give everybody exactly what they deserve everything, every sin committed. And it reminds me of, you know, we see in Romans chapter 2 where God tells us that God is patient and the kindness of God is meant to bring you to repentance, but, but you, because of your hard and impenitent heart, are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's the picture here. The wicked and unrepentant are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. God, the all-knowing God, knows everything that the wicked do, and he will bring it into judgment. So all of these things, this, this righteous judge who is judge over all, the one who is a shield for the upright, the one who feels indignation every day, the one who sees everything that is done against us, those who afflict us, he knows these things and he will bring it into judgment. He will vindicate his people and he will be glorified. And we will, we will not rejoice in the death of the wicked, as Scripture says, God does not, I do not, rejo- I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but wish that all would repent. But we will rejoice in the justice of God. And finally, he gives thanks, verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord 
I will give to the Lord the thanks due, his right, due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. He's giving praise, our righteous God. I mean, when we see who God is, again, as we've talked about what he's done, how can we not worship him? How can we not give him thanks? Even before, even before we see deliverance or before vindication. I mean, the reality is we won't see God's justice until Christ returns. The scripture tells us that. Can we be patient with that? Can we rejoice in this God who seems to delay judgment? But can we trust in him to do it? Yeah. I mean, look at the testimony of Scripture. I mean, everything that God has promised, he's done. He promised his son, and he came in the fullness of time. And think how long they waited. I mean, Adam and Eve, and for thousands of years, waiting for this promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. And God did it perfectly, just at the right time. So it's the same thing with his justice, his his judgment. It will come about at the perfect time, at the consummation of all things, and we will all rejoice. But we can rejoice in him now. We can give thanks to him now. And we trust in him now because he has proven himself faithful in everything. And he will be faithful in all of this and all that we may suffer or whatever injustice that we face, we know that God will be faithful to us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, for all that you are. We stand amazed. You... uh, We cannot comprehend your goodness. We cannot comprehend all of your love for us. But we see it in Christ. And we have tasted it by your spirit. Lord, would you help us to continue in these things, being ever mindful of who you are and your love for us and your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.